0: Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Moore Cronin, and today we're discussing The Beginning of Infinity. The Beginning of Infinity is a book and concept developed by the physicist David Deutsch, which seeks to answer the question, is infinite progress possible? In other words, is it possible for us to continue making more and more progress each year, accumulating ever greater knowledge and understanding about reality and ever greater ability to control our environment with godlike powers? Or is progress and knowledge bounded in some way? David Deutsch argues that knowledge and progress are infinite in nature. There are no upper bounds on what is possible. And the way to achieving infinite knowledge and infinite understanding is by seeking what he calls, quote, good explanations. Let's talk a little bit about how we come to these good explanations and how the history of knowledge has developed up until now. Well, you can think about it in these three tiers. There's instinctive knowledge, there's cultural knowledge, and then there's scientific knowledge. So instinctive knowledge would be something that you know innately without having had to learn anything from your parents or society or science or anything at all that you immediately react to. So for instance, if I am an orphan who grew up on an island and I'm walking through the wilderness and all of a sudden I see a bear or a tiger or a snake, I will instinctively know to either run from that animal or to fight it if I have to defend myself. That's something you don't need to learn. And it's interesting when you think about counterexamples to this, like for instance, a dog or a baby, a toddler, will instinctively be afraid of a bear or a tiger or a snake, but they won't instinctively be afraid of a car. And that's why so many dogs tragically die running, chasing after cars or running into the street. So there is certain knowledge that is instinctive to us that doesn't need to be explained. And most animals, most of their knowledge is instinctive. That's the extent of their knowledge. There's only a select few species that even have cultural knowledge that they pass from one generation to the next. Cultural knowledge goes beyond instinctive knowledge as it allows the members of that community to adapt to their particular environment. So, for instance, the culture of the Eskimos, the Inuits, is quite different than the culture of the Maasai tribe of Africa, which are known for hunting lions, and their environments are quite different. If you took an Eskimo who is perfectly suited for living in the ice, and you took them and put them on the plains of Africa, or vice versa, you take a Maasai lion hunting warrior and you put him up in the Arctic, neither of them will survive for very long because they do not have the cultural knowledge for what to do in each of those situations. And a lot of cultural knowledge comes down to rules of thumb. So for instance, if you are hungry and you're an Eskimo, a good rule of thumb is to dig a hole in the ice and to put down a lure into the ice and then once a curious fish comes up to check out the lure you stab it with your spear and that's a best practice for eskimos whereas for the maasai lion hunters you might have a rule of thumb of going with a band of other hunters and hunting these animals together and running for very far and barely wearing any clothes because it's so hot out there. So those are totally different rules of thumbs depending on the culture and each of them allows them, people in those communities to survive better than they would if they only had their instinctive knowledge. And oftentimes the culture of a community will foster certain religious beliefs. So religious beliefs and mythology often say more about the culture that came up with them and the nature of social interactions within that culture than they do about the fundamental laws of the universe. So for instance, in Greco-Roman culture, a lot of people were wondering, why are there the seasons? Why is it winter in some part of the year and then it's summer in another part of the year? Well, the myth that became the explanation for that phenomena was that Hades had captured Persephone and took her down into the underworld. And Persephone's mother, Demeter, is completely sad during those months. And so, because she is the goddess of the harvest in agriculture, it is cold during those months where her daughter is in the underworld. Now, this may say something interesting about the culture of Greco-Roman society, but it doesn't say anything about the actual changes of the seasons. It's not a good explanation. And what makes a good explanation is that it's hard to vary. So the reason that this is not a good explanation is because you could pretty much swap out any other god with Persephone or with Demeter or with Hades, and you would have the same basic outcome. So a lot of mythology boils down to the gods did it. And the huge achievement unlock that has allowed us to pursue the beginning of infinity is scientific knowledge. So beyond instinctive knowledge, beyond cultural knowledge. Scientific knowledge arose in the 16th and 17th century with the scientific revolution. There were a few early starts before then, many enlightenments like during Greco-Roman times, but really since the 16th and 17th century, we have made progress continually There have been some setbacks, but by and large, we have gotten better and better at not fooling ourselves as the years have gone on since the scientific revolution. And the way that this process occurs in science is through conjecture, criticism, and testing. So every scientific discovery starts with conjecture. You come up with an idea. You think, wow, I just had this epiphany about gravity. Newton may be sitting down and he sees an apple fall as the story that probably wasn't totally accurate goes. And he has this realization about the way the universe works. That's step one. Step two is criticism. He'll tell his friends about this idea that he has, this epiphany, and then they'll poke holes in it or they'll ask questions. And whenever two smart people come to a disagreement, the only way to get a good conclusion is to test it okay, let's test it out. If you believe there is something called the universal laws of motion, let's run a test to see if those laws of motion are in fact accurate. So for instance, one of the interesting implications of Newton's second law of motion is that an elephant and a penny dropped from the building at the same time would hit the ground at the same time, meaning they would fall at the same speed. And intuitively, if you didn't have any scientific knowledge or you didn't have any good explanation for why things fall as they do, you might think that the elephant would fall more quickly than the penny and it would hit the ground sooner. And that is partially correct because with F equals ma, the mass of the elephant gives it greater force. So it would have greater force coming down. However, the mass of the elephant also creates more wind resistance, so it's inversely proportional. Therefore, it always ends up being the same speed that any object falls. So whether it's an elephant or a penny, they will both fall at 9.8 meters per second. And that is a testable hypothesis. It is falsifiable. And you can test it as many times as you want and you will not get another result therefore it's a good explanation it's hard to vary so unlike the greco-roman example where you could just swap out different gods and get the same basic outcome you can't just swap out different variables for f equals ma it is very specific it is very useful and it is a great explanation Another important attribute to a good explanation is that it's satisfying. It must give the asker some satisfaction and some understanding of why things occur as they do, rather than just be purely about predictions. Some scientists will say that the purpose of science is pure prediction, but I would say that that is not the role of science. The role of science is pure understanding. And I can give an example to highlight this. So for instance, at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, there is a fridge with a champagne inside that fridge that is corked. And that champagne bottle will only be popped open if and when there is confirmed evidence of intelligent life beyond our planet. Now, if someone asks me, hey, is there other intelligent life beyond our planet? And all I'm doing is looking at that champagne bottle, I might one day notice, oh, hey, the champagne bottle got popped So therefore, yes, we have found uh, signs of intelligent life. And I could tell the person who's asking, I know that there is intelligent life because I saw the champagne bottle pop and therefore there is intelligent life. Well, that is a good predictor of there being intelligent life. It may have perfect prediction qualities, but it's not a good explanation because it doesn't actually explain how we know that there is intelligent life. The asker would probably say something like, okay, great. So it sounds like SETI must've found something. What did they find? How do they know that this is actual uh, signal from intelligent life and not just some noise in our own earth signals or some other type of explanation? So for a good explanation to be a good explanation, it must be satisfying and it must convey understanding about reality, not just be purely predictive. And the best explanations of all will be very concise. Essentially, the formula for the best possible explanation is the shortest amount of data that explains the largest amount of data. So what's considered the most elegant equation ever to exist is Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is E equals MC squared. This is just a few short characters. And with these few short characters, you can explain so many phenomena, universal laws of gravity and relativity and space and time. And it is incredible how much you can deduce about reality from this one equation. And so the question remains, will we find a even more elegant equation that describes even more phenomena than E equals mc squared? Because right now E equals mc squared for as amazing as it is, it does not explain what we observe in the quantum dimension. And so now we have two different models for reality. We have the quantum model and we have the general relativistic model, and we know they're both wrong in some important ways, but we don't quite know why they're wrong or what a better representation of reality would be. So there is this ongoing search for a theory of everything that with one short line or something like that could describe all the known phenomena that we observe. That leads to another question. Will we one day find this theory of everything? And if and when we find it, will we be done? Will we have solved all the problems? Will the mystery finally be over and done with? Well, I keep thinking about this cartoon I saw where there's these two scientists drawing away at a chalkboard with all of these unintelligible characters. They're like, "By God, we've done it. We finally got the theory of everything. And the reason this comic is so funny is because obviously just writing out characters on a whiteboard alone is not satisfying. You need to understand the implications of what this theory is for it to actually be a good explanation that unlocks some important capabilities. I think there is a misconception where some scientists feel like we're so close to the theory of everything. If only we can connect quantum mechanics with general relativity, then we'll have it all and we'll be over and done with. Well, I think that is a trap because even if we did find a theory of everything that explained everything in the known observable universe, there would still be questions about, okay, well, why is this, why are these the laws? Or what about other universes, other parallel universes, or things in the multiverse? Or maybe we go up in the emergence tower or down in the emergence tower. So no matter how much knowledge we gain and how much we improve upon our theories, there will always be more problems to solve. There will always be more theories to develop, because there will never be a case where we have no problems left to solve, and we have a term for that state of existence where there are no longer any problems to solve, there's no longer any need to make order out of disorder, and we call that death. There's two useful visual metaphors that I think bring this point home. One is imagine knowledge as a circle, and we start with a very small circle at the beginning of the scientific revolution. And slowly, we're chipping away in all directions to expand that circle to be ever greater. As we expand the circle, there's more and more surface area of new problems to solve. So knowledge expands as we learn more, but so do the implications of new things to discover and explain. They also expand. So I think that's just a useful way to think about the process of attaining ever greater knowledge. The other metaphor is that achieving progress and gaining knowledge is kind of like mining for gold. So when you're mining for gold, you might hit on a big new vein of gold. And then once you've hit on it, you mine all the ancillary veins to get as much of that gold out as you can. And that's important and that's what most scientists do. They know, hey, we figured out a lot of stuff right here, but there's still a few little things we haven't quite figured out. Maybe you should write your thesis paper on one of these little ancillary knowledge veins but even more important is finding totally new veins of knowledge, things that we haven't ever thought of before. So I think that is going to be a bigger X factor in the future is finding new veins of knowledge. And that comes down to out of the box thinking, creative thinking, not taking everything you've heard for granted and being willing to question even the most fundamental assumptions that most people have, that's how we can find these new veins of knowledge and exponentially increase our ability to achieve progress and greater understanding. Another question you might be asking yourself is, okay, well, even if knowledge and progress are infinite, is our ability to achieve progress and knowledge infinite? Aren't we constrained, whether it's by biological constraints or other constraints, with how much we can understand about reality? And there's this famous quote by J.B.S. Haldane, where he says, the universe is not only queerer than we imagine, it is queerer than we can imagine. And a lot of scientists take this point of view that There's only so much we can understand through our human brains, and so therefore, we are already at the limits of what we could possibly understand, and even understanding things like quantum mechanics is too much for many people, so aren't we near the end of how much we can understand as beings? Well, there may be some truth to that if you take a static lens of history, and yes, right now, like within the next 10 years, maybe there's not a whole lot more we we could understand, But when you take the long arc of history and you think about how humans have adapted to our planet and have gotten better and better at coming up with explanations for why our planet behaves as it does and why other phenomena behave as they do. Our co-evolution has allowed us to continually understand more than we had in the past. So if this continues and we continue to live on and evolve and adapt and supplant our own knowledge and brain power with the brain power of machines, which we're doing right now, and maybe through genetic engineering, we can have greater biological capabilities There is no limit to how much we can understand. And one metaphor that some naysayers will use is the spaceship Earth metaphor. So spaceship Earth is this concept where you can almost think of Earth as a spaceship that has all the perfect conditions for life. And if anything was even slightly out of whack, whether it's the tilt of the axis or the amount of heat that comes onto the planet or any other factor, all of life would be gone in an instant. And so therefore, we ended up in this Goldilocks zone that became perfectly hospitable for life. And we've been really lucky to inhabit Earth when it's in this Goldilocks zone. But because we are changing our environment and offsetting the balance, we may be digging our own graves in a sense. And we may be upsetting the Goldilocks zone. And that may spell the end of humanity and the end of human progress. However, the problem with this metaphor is that It takes the earth as this static dead planet and humanity as just luckily being in the right conditions. Whereas really there's two sides to it. Humanity and life, all life forms co-evolved with earth. And it's hard to even draw a clear distinction between earth and the life that inhabits earth. They really are almost one in the same entity. The fact that we have been able to adapt to the planet as it's changed so much all these thousands of years, and that now we're finally seeing some of the less beneficial effects of our changes to the environment with climate change, and we are adjusting and doing things to help the outcome of the planet, Those are all signs that we will be able to get past whatever current difficulties we have. And so whether the limits that most scientists will talk about are biological or the resources of Earth in being able to support however many human beings there are in the future, I think we can get past all of those limitations just through the scientific method. We can colonize other planets. We can use the energy and resources on Earth more intelligently and we can supplant our intelligence with other types of intelligence, whether it's through greater genetic engineering or through using machine intelligence. There are so many potential avenues to achieving greater progress and greater understanding. The last thing I wanna talk about before we get into the future scenarios is the connection between light and infinity. There seems to be a really big clue about the nature of reality that is the speed of light. No matter how fast you try to go, no matter how much energy you propel, you cannot go faster than the speed of light if you consist of any amount of mass at all. This is a really curious reality about the state of affairs in our universe. And it seems to be a clue that light may have some fundamental role in the nature of reality. And consciousness is also this mysterious force that we all use the word consciousness, we have a sense of what it means. If it feels like something to be something, then that thing is conscious. But how consciousness plays into the phenomena that we experience is still quite a mystery. So it's possible that there is some connection between light and consciousness, where perhaps all of reality is in some sense thought into existence by conscious beings. So consciousness may be the substrate of reality. And when you think about the fact that everything's made of atoms and yet atoms are 99.99% empty space, well, then all of reality is kind of like smoke and mirrors. And it's our consciousness that lights it up and creates all of these incredible visual phenomena, auditory phenomena that we experience in our own minds. And so maybe light and consciousness are one and the same or they're closely connected in some way. And the other mysterious forces are dark matter and dark energy. Most of the matter and energy in the observable universe is dark matter and dark energy. It's not what we would consider normal matter and normal energy. And from the perspective of dark matter, we are these glowing light beings because all normal matter and energy emits light. So there is some interesting thing about just thinking about what reality would look like from the perspective of dark matter. And that may tell us something about the nature of ourselves. One hypothesis that I have is that maybe all of this dark matter and dark energy are other parallel realities that are mathematically accessible to us at any given moment, but we are only experiencing the one version of reality that we have chosen through the cybernetic collective. So at any given time, we are moving through the cosmos and we are in some sense deciding what path we want to take through the cosmos and all the other possible paths we could have taken at any given time, perhaps those are represented by dark matter and dark energy. There are so many mysteries that have yet to be solved and there will be infinite more mysteries once we've solved the ones that we're currently thinking and talking about. And because of the nature of knowledge and progress and the fact that there will always be new problems to solve and new knowledge to gain, we will always be at the beginning of infinity. Now let's get into the future scenarios. Let's talk about the worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario is that our current streak of progress since the scientific revolution will come to an end sometime in the next hundred years. Whether it's because we destroy ourselves or some external cataclysmic event happens, this would be a terrible outcome because it would set us back possibly thousands of years, maybe millions of years until new life develops and is able to continue the method of coming up with new ideas, criticizing them, and creating better and better explanations through testing. In the short term, I'm also concerned that our current culture is becoming less accepting of criticism. I recently saw this tweet from Peter Boghossian, who's an academic, and he had criticized another academic's idea. And then that academic wrote a hit piece about Peter Burgosian saying that he's a bully and we got to get rid of all these bullies in academia. Well, so long as you're criticizing an idea and you're not doing ad hominem attacks on the person, we should be totally accepting of criticism. This is the method that drives humanity forward. So by continuing to allow for conjecture, new out of the box thinking, and criticism of those ideas and testing of those ideas so we can actually come to some useful conclusions. This is the path forward, but I'm a little bit concerned that we're becoming a little bit too soft and everything appears to be too personal in nature and we're no longer able to take an unbiased approach and assess ideas on their own merit. Now let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. In the best case, we continue to pursue infinite knowledge and infinite progress both externally by exploring other planets and star systems and sending rockets out into the great beyond and internally by looking at the micro world of what's going on in quantum mechanics and creating virtual worlds right here on Earth. So in a sense, we have infinite possibilities in two directions. We can go up in the Emergence Tower, going from our planet to stars to galaxies to the whole observable universe to the multiverse, and we can go down on the Emergence Tower from ourselves to our atoms to subatomic particles to whatever goes beyond subatomic particles. So it's really exciting place to be, and I think ultimately we will probably focus more on the micro because it's easier in a sense to create new worlds right here than it is to visit external worlds that take so long to get to. But who knows, maybe one day we'll figure out how to go beyond the speed of light and we can basically transport ourselves through warp drive or some other mechanism to wherever we want to go in the observable universe. And in a grand sense, you can almost think of the universe as being sliced into these cubes, one light year in each direction. And most of the universe is what we would consider very uninteresting. It's just a lot of space. Maybe there's some stars, but it's almost like if you took all of the liquids in your fridge and you mix them all together, it's just gonna be kind of this bland mix of various stuff, not ordered in any sort of interesting way. Whereas if you compare the average chunk of space to our own little neighborhood, Our neighborhood is much more interesting it has these different concentrations of planets and the sun and within earth we are ordering the world in this interesting way where we're taking disorderly nature we're putting it into buildings and other structures so in a grand sense in the best case scenario we would be able to create a similar kind of order not only in our little square or cube of the universe but expanding to other cubes and other squares and there does not seem to be any bound on how far this could go. The furthest manifestation of this would be complete ability to perform transmutation. So even in one of these cubes of space that is totally uninteresting, where all all there are are some floating hydrogen atoms, not a whole lot else to work with, Even then, it is theoretically possible that we could take those hydrogen atoms, we could combine them, we could create any type of atomic structure, molecular structure we could want and basically create order out of complete disorder. So that is the farthest extent of what I would consider the best case scenario where we can take anything and make it into anything else that we want. Transmutation is interesting because we've been trying to do it for thousands of years. Before there were proper scientists, there were alchemists, which tried to take less expensive materials and turn it into gold. And we still haven't been able to master alchemy, even after all the incredible scientific discoveries and achievements we've had since modern times. It seems to me like eventually we will figure this out. We will master transmutation and we will have total control over the physical environment. Now let's get into the most likely scenario most likely scenario The most likely scenario is that while we will never achieve infinite progress or infinite knowledge because there will always be more knowledge and progress to be had, we will continue to gain more knowledge and make more progress. There will certainly be setbacks, just like how during the Middle Ages there was massive setback before the scientific revolution got started again in earnest. There will be similar setbacks in the future, but I truly believe that if we take the long arc of history, we will achieve far greater progress and far greater knowledge and understanding and ability to manipulate our environment than we have right now. It really is only limited by our ability to imagine and our ability to act on those imaginations, talk about them with others, test them, this is the formula and as long as we continue that formula there are incredible things that we can achieve the last thing i'll say is that i would encourage you to continue thinking out of the box don't take anyone's word for it think from first principles come up with creative ideas join a community of critics who will tell you if your ideas are good or bad and why in an impersonal way and if you're interested in learning more about this topic i would definitely encourage you to read david deutsch's book also called The Beginning of, of Infinity. I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you all for listening, and, we'll and I'll see you the next end. week.